0: Welcome, folks, to the uncommon good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Budmar.
1: Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The uncommon good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. Uh-oh. Oh. There we are. Dr. Budmar. There you go. Bud is with uh, us today. Here. We are coming to you live from these United States. I'm over here in Des Moines, Iowa where I'm not participating in The uh, People are worried that I would crash my bike and crash everybody else's bike, but I'm the Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the Director of the Zita Institute for Foundation Ethics and Leaderships. You can find us at mchs.edu and zitainstitute.com. But out at Pittsburgh, I don't know if they have bike uh, ragbri type events, but I'm sure they have something with, like, pierogies. Is there anything like oh, that happening?
0: Oh, wow. I think you and I are always doing uh, everyone a favor by not participating in ragbri. Oh, like yeah. sp- spandex and sweat and the uncommon good don't mix.
1: That's right, and that's a lot of uh, he- uh, emergency services being <laughs> uh, utilized for just two people.
0: But no, I'm at the um, National Institute for Newman Studies, and you can find out what we're doing at newmanstudies.org.
1: And one of the nice things, Bud, is uh, we're actually going to get to meet up in a separate city, so neither Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. nor Des Moines has to worry about us um, bicycling around. But New Orleans uh, is on uh, call and uh, alert, because we'll both be down there for a conference. So um, I don't think the people of New Orleans are going to try to force us to ride bikes as much as people at Iowa try to suggest it, though.
0: No, I think they'll give us a pass on that one. I've got fond memories of New Orleans. I was down there for a conference a few years ago with my friend uh, Mike Shea, and uh it was crawfish season and my buddy Mike consumed like twenty pounds of crawfish. <laughs> That's right. We went to the, we went to the same hole in the wall restaurant every night and you know, I don't know what it's like in Oklahoma, Bo, but when I was down there, crawfish seemed like an excuse to eat butter. That's right. Like how how can we funnel the butter the butter into our system? Right. Well we uh, call 'em
1: we'll call it, we call 'em crawdaddies, so it's a little bit different. And uh or we call them crawfish uh, or etouffee, but uh yeah, there's plenty of um uh, butter, but uh, what there's a lot of is hot sauce, and so yeah, that's true. you know you run around acting like these little you know bug-looking sea creatures uh, naturally come with just Tabasco and Louisiana hot sauce coursing through their veins. But that is biologically incorrect, um, but that's how a lot of people eat them.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna sound like a hoity-toity northerner, but I was amazed at the swamplands down there. They exist, you know. When you're driving into New Orleans, it's it's like 20 miles of just swamp, yeah. and there yeah. are there are establishments, you know, like the idea of like a a boat saloon or something, right? Like on the swamp, it's amazing.
1: Yes, yeah, no, uh, y- you do sound like you're very much from Nebraska and have never How seen. How do that.
0: people live like that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> As I take my monocle out. That's right. <laughs> Well, I don't know about... You're not driving from Pittsburgh, are you? I'm flying in. So I, are you taking a riverboat? Are, are you a riverboat gambler, bud? And this has now only come to pass on the radio show.
0: Well, this summer I read... Uh, I reread The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. There so you I go. I do feel like taking some sort of barge down the Mississippi into New Orleans.
1: Yeah, well... <laughs> Sounds uh, like a
0: lot of fun adventures are to be had. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on a barge? Have you you've seen barges, right? Like you and I would we would cook like crawfish on the top of a barge. At any rate, this hey, is this has gone you know, per left field. I think maybe real should, quick, okay, real quick okay. before the
0: sponsor, you need to ask Tony or whoever whoever's in charge over there if we can do like a sponsored Iowa Catholic Radio Adventures of Bow and Bud, like we build a raft and go down the Mississippi
1: River. I do like this. If I if, <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy said if we sold it right, we can have. A Tom and Huck adventure for the comic. Like Leonetti leads city.
0: pilgrimages to Rome, but we could do this down to New Orleans. That's on right. A raft. I like you that. find
1: the underwriter. We've. Wow. <laughs> Oh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Oh Okay, well, you know what, bud? When we're inevitably on that adventure and we get injured, it's good to know that Mercy College of Health Sciences, who underwrites our show, produces plenty of people in the medical field that can help us. Go look at mchs.edu if you want to go and uh, learn how to operate on uh, people who get sick regularly, have injuries, or people who make unintelligent decisions about going down the Mississippi River in watercraft that they probably can't actually steer. That's mchs.edu, uh, where you can start your uh, degree anytime uh, fall, summer, or spring.
0: Yeah, my summer uh, servant leadership course is wrapping up, and it's I, as we've said on the show before, it's always pretty cool to see what students are doing out in the community, and, and, and Mercy does a great job of blending that community service, compassion, and of course... Great courses.
1: So we appreciate them for underwriting our show. But today we have uh, on our show Teresa. Uh, I'm, I want to make sure to say right, Farnan, um, and she's a, a Pennsylvania person. So this this comes from your people's recommendation out in Pittsburgh. So I didn't know if you could, uh, if you wouldn't mind introducing a little bit of uh, what she does out there and what we're going to talk about on the show today.
0: Yeah. So Teresa Farnan teaches at St. Paul Seminary here in Pittsburgh. She's also taught at Franciscan University and Mount St. Mary's Seminary. But when I, I, I've had more than one person here in Pittsburgh recommend her for the show. And in talking with her beforehand, it was tough to settle on what to discuss, because she's, she's an expert in a few different areas, including she's written some on uh, questions about uh, gender and how the Church understands and approaches those things. But she's also uh, really well-spoken, well-versed in questions about disability, which, of course, is um, a recurring topic in our society, our relationship, and the place of the the disabled in our communities. So we're going to talk with her about uh, how that all relates to the common good, but especially how do we make our parishes and schools places uh, where the disabled are are welcomed and can thrive.
1: Now, it's nice to get back to um, the Pittsburgh well. You know, I think sometimes... now, this this takes uh, maybe a little bit of fiction, bud, but I imagine mm-hmm. someone who listens to every single episode and has, like, a wall chart, and yeah. they put little pins where our speakers come from, that they'll notice that, you know, we start having clusters from people that, like, uh, we get in touch with, and they tell us other people, you know, so, of course, yeah. right? we have Iowa people and Oklahoma people and Pittsburgh people, we have Notre Dame people. Um, I just like to think that that means that we're friendly, and instead of scaring people off, that means that... Um, other people go you gotta go uh, onto the show so that's me self-promoting and I, I hope that uh, you know between that and uh, making people imagine what we would look like sunburnt on a river barge in the Mississippi I really hope we're not driving people away at the top of the hour
0: no I don't think so I hope not but I, you've really tapped the South Bend market this summer so kudos, kudos to you on that one
1: that's right if it has to do with the South Side South Bend South America oh, yeah, true. I'm there right uh, but uh, speaking of the south side did I tell you that um, I walked all the way from the south side to downtown, this is the most healthy thing I've done in my life for a while. Um, but there is no easy bridge to cross no. over from the south side of Des Moines um, into uh, uh, the you know downtown. Like, if you do, you're on a bridge with like loads of cars, and there's just vehicles zooming left and right. And I realize they, they don't want us, bud. I, I'm starting to see this now. When, when you walk around, and if it looks like you've walked in from the south side, they're worried. No, I'm kidding.
0: Yeah, in, Ur- in Urbandale, we had a community meeting, a civic meeting, and part of it was how do we eliminate the bridges that <laughs> run from south side to downtown. When you lived in Urbandale. <laughs> well, I was going to
1: ask, you know, like Pittsburgh famously has, like according to what you've been letting us know, like, you know, only very specific places uh, that you can get over. I didn't know if you had bridge issues as well.
0: Oh, the, bridge, the bridges here are the real sticking point with traffic. So you got to decide which bridge you're going to cross. It's kind of like a video game. And I have these brain, uh, wild-haired, like, theories about how to move the population, the working population from downtown over the bridges, and then they could commute from there. But whatever I do, that people look at me like I'm a crazy person.
1: You're an outsider. Like, well, You live in
0: Pittsburgh. You'll have to cross bridges.
1: <laughs> Speaking of bridges we have to cross, we're going to cross the bridge of going over to listening to our sponsors, then we'll be back after this. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back after this. <laughs> of the Uncommon Good, Beau Bonner and Dr. Bud Maher coming to you this wonderful Wednesday. Um, like I said at the top of the show, uh, Bud, the guest we have ter- today, um, you were able to get in contact with her and she's uh, with the Pittsburgh Group, so if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and have you introduce her.
0: Yeah, our guest this, sh- this morning is Dr. Teresa Farnan. She's an author and moral philosopher who specializes in virtue ethics, philosophy of the person, sexual difference and identity, and ethical issues facing the family, she currently teaches at St. Paul Seminary, and has served as a consultant to the U.S. CCB Committee on Lady, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Teresa, thanks for being with us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm delighted to be here.
0: I've been kind of uh, trying to work this out for a while. I've I've heard great things about you from a number of people here in Pittsburgh. So you've built kind of a legendary uh, uh, reputation here. And um, our our conversation this morning, when we were talking about you coming on the show as related to disability, and this is um, fresh on your mind, it sounds like, you're going to be speaking at the uh, U.S. Catholic Bishops' Meeting um, on talking about young adults with disabilities. And, uh, and thinking about the topic, my mind went back to, I'm sure you're familiar with this story a few years ago, where um, in Iceland there was this um, message going out that they had cured Down syndrome. But as you looked into the story, it basically boiled down to, eliminating, you know, children in the womb who are diagnosed with Down syndrome. So this is, uh, this is an area where the Catholic Church really, we have a countercultural witness to give, right, in terms of understanding of the human person and the place of suffering in the world. Oh,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And the, um, the, uh, the Iceland story, um, when, you, when you actually look into the details, they are a country that has been pushing prenatal testing, and in particular the early prenatal testing. And um, what's going on there is a particular form of eugenics that's been dubbed by some thinkers. I think Georgie Borman from The Federalist was one who used this term as a um, sort of nudge-enex, nudge, instead of eugenics, nudge annex, meaning you sort of nudge people along to the desired eugenic um, outcome, namely eliminating an entire class of um, of persons, and so in Iceland, in particular, they've built up a lot of different rituals, um, almost you know, I don't want to say sacramental, but quasi-religious with, with quasi-religious significance surrounding the abortion of a child with disabilities. So they have mementos and memorials, and and it takes on almost this very strange religious importance. And in the process, parents of children who receive a prenatal diagnosis are presented with this prenatal diagnosis as if there's no other possible choice, right? Even though on paper it looks like you have a choice. And it's the same thing in the U.K. Um, I remember looking into this for a paper I did a number of years ago um, where they are spending, you know, uh, as thirty say, like if the number is 31,000 pounds, I don't have the exact figure in front of me, um thirty one thirty one million pounds on um, prenatal diagnosis. They're spending one point five million on research to ameliorate the condition of Down syndrome. So there's a huge imbalance in terms of the allotment of resources for treating persons with disabilities as opposed to all of the money being put into eliminating persons with Down syndrome. So um, a number of years ago, there was a documentary on the BBC where they interviewed parents of children with disabilities. and one mom who had a child with disabilities refused to go to the doctor early on when she had her next child because she was afraid that she would receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome, and she knew the kind of pressure she was going to be subjected to in order to, um, you know, pressure to have an abortion. So, so overall, um, the future for children with Down syndrome, even though we're at a moment where inclusion is something that's being promoted, you mm-hmm. know, worldwide we see, like, inspiring videos of persons with Down syndrome doing things and winning dance contests and being on sports teams and making shots in basketball games. The reality is the number of persons with Down syndrome is dwindling, and it's going to be look increasingly more bleak. And as they become rare, more and more rare, the amount of money allotted for research into helping persons with these conditions is going to also become more and more bleak and it's going to be more and more unthinkable for parents to have a child with disabilities so down syndrome i use that as an example because it's one of the more high prof- it's one of the most common birth defects and it's one of the more com- more high profile instances of using prenatal testing to eliminate an entire class of persons with disabilities but but they're talking about this with other with other disabilities there was a paper published in the uk um a number of years ago defending what they termed afterbirth abortion, but it really was infanticide, for two mm-hmm. two distinct conditions. They used Down syndrome and Treacher-Collins syndrome, which is a, um, a genetic anomaly involving facial anomalies. And it can vary in severity, and there are persons who have Treacher-Collins syndrome. It's, you know, you you, you treat the manifestations of the syndrome and you know there're so many instances of persons with that disability who go on and you know there's a woman down in Texas who's a, who's a physician who has treacher collins syndrome so so all in all we're at this very strange moment in yeah. our um, in in western civilization where on the one hand we have so much to offer persons with disabilities and on the other hand there is this insidious you know quiet campaign to exert pressure on families so that when <laughs> they get that early prenatal diagnosis the you really have this sense that you're carrying the child that, you know, anywhere from 67% in the United States to 90% or 100% of people in other countries would not carry. So and and it's very personal for yeah. me because I have a little girl with Down syndrome, a little, an eight-year-old daughter.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And as a moral philosopher and someone who's looked at, you know, you talk to seminarians about the moral issues involved. What do you think, historically shifted in our in western society that caused this kind of change in perception about what constitutes a valuable human life and and who to get brass tacks about it who deserves to live
2: wow um, you know fascinating that's that's actually the million dollar question i i would say one of the one of the shifts that happened was that we Well, there are so many different things. You know, number one, I would say just immediately with the advent of contraception and the ability to choose whether or not you want to have a child, you know, people became used to thinking about, okay, is this the right moment for me to have a child? In other words, what are my desires? What are my goals? And increasingly we saw parents who became, you know, rather than seeing the child as a gift, looked at the child as something that, that almost is sort of, you know, their choice in a strange way, their, their possession, their privilege, their right to have. Um, and at the same time, with, um, with reproductive technology and the ability in IVF to screen embryos, suddenly we have the technology to have the kind of child you want to have. And so, you know, we hear all these stories about designer babies and how people can use IVF in order to have designer babies, Well, we're already choosing, in a sense, we're choosing the kind of child we want to have using genetic and prenatal screening, right? And so there's this strong sense that if I'm only going to have two or three children or one child, I want that child to be like Mm. awesome, right? And it's going to be the best child. Now, if you trace that all the way back and look at sort of the philosophical roots of that, some of this goes back to the philosophy of utilitarianism, which was like a late 19th, really came of age in the 20th century, but had its roots in the 19th century and beyond 18th century with philosophers um, like John Stuart Mill and uh, Jeremy Bentham. And um, one of the things that utilitarianism tries to do is maximize the greatest amount of happiness of the greatest number of people. Well, How do you do that? And how do you even define that or quantify that? And so what that's settled into is a um, philosophy of uh, known as preference utilitarianism, where we're going to try to satisfy the preferences of as many people as possible. Now, when you're talking about an unborn child versus their parents, obviously the unborn child can't make their preferences known. And so you see philosophers like Peter Singer arguing that the preferences of the parent should take priority. And so a parent that accidentally maybe prenatal diagnosis doesn't pick up a genetic anomaly if they have a child that is born with any kind of disability essentially Peter singer argues in the first three years they should have opportunity for a do-over in order to satisfy their preference for a healthy child and in that way we can maximize the happiness of the greatest number of people I mean it's a horrendous way of thinking and it it, it doesn't even it doesn't even work practically yeah. like what does that even look like I mean it you know, access if children are disposable property. But all of this is just this very strange coalescence of all, of, of number one, the technology, number two, the contraceptive reproductive technology ethic and way of looking at children, and then number three, this utilitarian idea that somehow we can satisfy the preferences and, and prefer, you know, I always say to my students, we have we're living in a society that has, that prefers adult happiness over children. We have a social preference for adult happiness. And so the needs of children are put aside, whether it's like redefining marriage or children with disabilities, the needs of children are put aside in order to to satisfy, you know, sort of the me-too, me-first ethic that came of age with the baby boomers in the wake of the contraceptive revolution. So I don't know. That's a That's a long...
0: <laughs> yeah, right. answer
2: for a very difficult question. I mean, we really have a different way of looking at the family. The family now is something that we look at that exists in order to satisfy our own desires rather That's than right. understanding yep. that family is a relationship given to you as your vocation in order for you to fulfill your responsibilities to others and to to grow and nurture each other and, and eventually get to heaven. I mean, we've lost sight of that eternal
1: dimension of it. The, the, uh, so this is Bo. Um, I was going to throw out one of the things that, um, really picked up with what you were pointing out, especially with the utilitarianism is when you talk about the common good, of course our show tries to be devoted to that. Um, you know, th- th- one of the hardest things people n- try to understand and, 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 because it's not in our water, we don't swim in this way of thinking is to try to convince people that their their best individual good is also the same as the good held in common uh, that's best for everyone, that you can actually have... Uh, a superior good for the individual that can only be manifested in a good shared by a community as a whole. And so it's hard for people to think that way. We kind of have leveled um, the playing field where everybody thinks it's, you know, everything's either atomistic completely or completely collectivist. Um, But I think your point about kids is the natural way to start pointing this out to people, that if children are only seen as something for the collective good, cogs in the machine, or individualistic good, so the preference of the parents, we miss out how the good of both the individual child, the good of the parents, and the good of society actually all thread together. Um, and so I think talking about disability in our era um, provides the chance to show what we mean by the common good, that actually when we, when we, make room for disabled children. It's not something that we're bending over backwards to do or look how, how nice we are. It's actually constitutive of the goods we hold in common that our weakest members, both just babies in and of themselves, but people who have difficulties or disabilities, make us better because the communal good is actually best for all individuals. We're coming up on a break in five minutes, but with in a short way, I was wondering, Therese if you could, you could point out, is that... When you're talking with students, one of the more difficult things for them to understand is how is it that an individual and a social good can actually um, not only get along but be constitutive of each other?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the hardest things, um, and it really it stems from the fact that from the time of the Enlightenment, with the um, advent of social contract theory, we're used to thinking of ourselves as individuals first, who then agree to join society because it. It fits our, our special interests, so to speak, like, you know, we're able to kind of do things better if we do them with a group than alone, and so it sort of benefits us. And and actually, I mean, what you were talking about takes us all the way back to the teachings of St. Thomas, where he taught, St. Thomas Aquinas, where he taught that the common good and individual good are never in opposition. In other words, you as an individual, even when you make sacrifices for the sake of the common good, you're fulfilling something important in your nature, because by nature, you're social. You're born into these relationships, and it's how you flourish, right? You get back to the Aristotelian idea of flourishing, that you become a better person living in a community. And I'll tell you what, it is so hard to unwind this idea. And, and if you're a parent, like if you've got people in your audience listening you have children with disabilities, they will know exactly what I mean by this. There is a tendency to approach parents of children with disabilities or family members of people with disabilities as if somehow you're this really heroic person who's taking on an unpleasant task because you're very saintly. And and it's the farthest thing from the truth. It's just that, you know, we were humble enough, I guess, to realize, to recognize, like, hey, this is not the gift that I thought I was getting. It's not, you know, not that I imagined or didn't imagine what kind of child I was going to have, but okay, here she is, and she's different. And what a joy, what a privilege, you know, the, the statement, the 1978 Bishop Statement on persons with disabilities refers to taking care of a family member with disabilities as a privilege, and it absolutely is. But it's so frustrating because in our culture there's this tendency to view you as somehow the Mother Teresa of parents or, you know, the St. Joseph of fathers. And in doing that, that absolves other people of their responsibility to do the same. They can look at you as a parent and say, Somehow, oh, well, that person is willing to put their own good on hold and take care of this person with disabilities. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. I can tell you, you know, and and from talking with other families, from research done by by Dr. Brian Scott Coe and Harvard, you know, on family members with disabilities, one of the things that that is universally recognized by by family members of persons with disabilities is that this is an enriching experience that makes you, a better person. In other words, it it enhances your happiness. You're not putting your happiness on hold. But it is the hardest thing to unwind, and it all goes back to that idea that, you know, our individual desires need to be met first, and sacrifice is something where you put your desires and your happiness on hold, you know, out of some weird altruistic ideal. And it, it just is so opposite to
1: how human beings really are made. No, and I the the point about altruism. Uh, we're getting ready to go to the break, but t- to say this uh, almost sort of as a, a preview to intrigue people to keep listening after the commercials is um, altruism. Altruism, as it is usually said, is almost in its entirety anti-Catholic because, funny enough, if you think about Thomas uh, lighting on Aristotle, what ancient Greeks said, um, it's actually in your self-interest to be good, <laughs> and sometimes people. Uh, you know they're they're sort of proto Kantians without knowing it. They've sort of imbibed this idea that unless I hate it, what I do isn't worthy. Whereas of course, I mean everything we want to say like loving Jesus Christ, loving our neighbors, helping the disabled. This is not something where you're like gritting your teeth. It can be hard in the individual instance, but it's actually what's best for you. So this is the uncommon good with Bo Bonner and Bud Marr. We're talking with Trees Farnum. When we get back after these messages, stick around. We'll be right back. <laughs> Common Good, Beau Bonner and Dr. Bud Mar with you this Wednesday. Thank you for joining the show. Um, today on the show we have Therese Farnum. Dr. Therese Farnham, um, out Pittsburgh Way. She uh, teaches at St. Paul Seminary in Pittsburgh. Uh, Bud, yet again, thank you for diving deep into the Pittsburgh well. You want to go ahead and start off this segment, Bud? Uh-oh, Bud, are you there? I'm here. Okay, go ahead. Yep.
0: Yeah. Teresa, I don't want to steal any thunder from your... Um that the panel that you're participating in at the USCCB, you told us that you're going to be talking some about uh, 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 parishes and how they include young adults with disabilities, how we should think about you know, incorporating such members into our community. Could you give us a sneak preview of some of what you're going to share in that context?
2: Oh, sure, absolutely. There's um, So uh, the USCCB and some of the various, various youth ministry groups and Franciscan University are hosting a nationwide conference called the Voice and Vision Conference. And it's really focusing on um, youth ministry and young adults. I mean, um, it's no secret we are having a hard time keeping young people engaged in our church, and it's really because there's sort of a void in terms of what we have to offer them. I mean, you can only do theology on tap so many days. Um, so so the context of the conference is to, to problem-solve with respect to that. And I was asked to speak about... Um, uh, young persons with disabilities, and and I'll tell you what, in my experience, just from from um, uh, speaking to other family members and being engaged in our parish, I'm I'm at a parish that is actually incredibly friendly to persons with disabilities, and there are things that parishes can do to include persons with disabilities in a um, a really meaningful, significant way. Again, getting back to that bishop's pastoral statement, one of the points they make is that persons with individuals with disabilities not only have a right to participate in the parish life and in the, the church community, but they have a duty to. So think about that. What does that mean in terms of how we structure our parishes? Are we giving young persons an opportunity to participate to the extent that we're able to? And I, I you know, we tend to approach persons with disabilities as an object of charity rather than looking at them and saying, well, what, you know, come on in, do what you can do. see what see how you can help us. And let me give you an example. our um Our parish has a um, youth group that goes on a mission trip to Appalachia every year to different parts of very poor areas in West Virginia, and they rehab houses for a week. And it's this intensive retreat experience. And um, as part of what they've been doing for the past couple of years, there every single year, there has been a young adult with Down syndrome who's gone with them. And these young adults with Down syndrome work in different capacities. They're on the site. They're either working, you know, running errands, doing things like that, um, doing whatever tasks they're able to. But to see the inclusion and what that means not just for that young adult but also for other persons in the retreat, it's just an amazing experience. And so, you know, what I hope to do is to challenge youth ministers and other groups around the country and say, you know, are you doing this? When you put together that youth group, are you looking around at the young adults in your parish and saying, who have disabilities, and saying, you know, come on in, you're welcome. Come with your aide or your family member, whoever can give you the assistance you need, but we want you here, and it's important for you to be here because you have a contribution to make. So, I mean, that's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping to do, <clears throat> to, to push them in to say, "Come on, let's let's open the doors a little bit more. Inclusion is not just about having a wheelchair ramp."
1: What's? You know? Yeah, no, I I think this starts to be interesting. And speaking of wheelchair ramps and sort of to bring back technology again, you point out right that part of the the attitude that makes something like uh, Iceland's attempt to eliminate um, Down syndrome populations is this idea that okay, because we have technology in all sorts of facets in our life things that used to be just considered out of our control or sort of providential and gifts, Uh, we now decide we can choose when we want them and even design them. So we treat human beings like we would, um, you know, ordering off of an Amazon catalog. But the other strange thing about this is, going back to your saying, like, not only do they have, you know, the right but the duty to participate in church life, it seems strange that now that we have the technology for all sorts of people who used to would not even probably survive childbirth let alone childhood, let alone be able to like get out and and, and, and be part of the community this should be the glory of us I'm mean, even not even before we talk about it theologically this should be the glory of a society that we say look the, these members of ours who in times past wouldn't have the capacity not only to flourish but to even maybe live, Look now how they're not only alive, but part of our life and integrated. The, the, the slowing down um, to take time uh, with these people and integrate them into our communities, that should be something that people brag about. That we we now have uh, the, the sort of technology, we have marshaled the resources, we have a society that understands um, that it's almost worthy of bragging about that we can include people that in former times we could not. And yet, even in the life of the church, it starts creeping in this mentality that it's a difficulty. You you said this right before the end of the last segment, that it becomes, oh, only superheroes uh, work with people that have disabilities. Um, It just seems like a a strange misplaced opportunity to, to not be able to glory in the fact that we have a community that people... Can be a part of and flourish in when other communities can't. And, and all I can think of is, like you said, w- instead of looking at this blessing um, and, and this this true prize to, to be proud of, people see the work involved and in that it might in some occasions make wa- you know life a little harder um, and, and they bristle and walk away. Um, I, my guess is that the extensive work you do and the ability that you have to, to talk with people is that might be one of the underlying frustrations, you know, for people who who do the good work that you do? Is why aren't people, uh, you know, proud of our abilities to include uh, people and to make our community uh, more inclusive and larger? Uh, like you said. Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. And 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 actually, I mean, I, one of the one of the other themes I'm hoping to touch on kind of has really relates to this, which is that. Um, At the end of the day, one of the things that we should be striving for in our parish communities is to form these bonds of friendship, right? So a parish is not just about people coming together at random times to celebrate the sacraments, but it should be a real community in an Aristotelian sense where you are friends because you're traveling together in search of what truly is good for everybody. And so if you think about persons with disabilities who show up at Mass, what is the attitude of people around them? Are Are they... welcoming them, do they take the time to get to know that individual's name? Do they do they take the time to greet the parents who are bringing the disabled person? And I'm thinking in particular about severely disabled individuals. There was, you know, over the over the years, I, I've spent so much time in the crying room. I, I always joke with my husband that when, when I have my funeral, I want my wake in the crying room because <laughs> that's where everyone's used to seeing me. Um, but, the, but there was a family that used to bring in um, a very disabled young adult who had, you know, a pretty significant disability, he was in a wheelchair and had difficulty communicating, and um, they would sit in the crying room because he would make noise. He would, he would, he would make make pretty loud noises during during the mass. And and as we would sit there in the crying room after a mass or two, you realize that he's making noise when everyone's singing. In other words, here's mm-hmm. this extremely, prof- you know, very disabled young man who is participating, right? And so the parents become very self-conscious because he's making loud noise. When the reaction of the community should not be to look at him and say, he's making so much noise, can you put him in the crying room? It should be, hey, why, you know, come on into the church because we know he's participating. It doesn't matter if, you know, his way of trying to sing along is saying intelligible words. He's participating probably more than a lot of the teenagers in that church and and it takes what it takes is it takes an attitude of friendship to be able to to look at the parents and even to you know or the caregivers and to say wow you know so and so was really participating today you know he really loved the music today and and if you notice something like that that is such a welcoming powerful experience and i'll tell you what you're not just bringing in that young adult but you're also bringing in the caregivers the family members because what will happen otherwise is if they feel marginalized and excluded and they worry about making noise and disturbing people's perfect prayer life, yep. um, they're not going to come back to church. So so we we really need to focus on, I think, extending that hand of friendship. Take the time to get to know the names of the individuals who are disabled. If they're bothering you when you're in church and you're praying and you hear someone with autism making a lot of noise, you know what? that's the moment when you have to just sort of say to yourself, I think God is calling me to friendship, right? What does it take? It takes going up to them afterwards, introducing yourself. Hi, I'm, you know, here's my, I'm Teresa. What's your name? What's your family member's name? Get to know their name so the next time you hear them saying something, you'll know, hey, that's, you know, John or that's Annie or whoever it is. And and I think doing that can really have a powerful transformative effect. On our culture, that that we as Catholics, we have the we have the spirituality, we have the theology. Everything is calling us to that moment, and here we are in the midst of the culture of death. And what we need to do is make our parishes havens for all these family members who are actually choosing life.
0: Yeah, there's an up and coming comedian that Bo and I both like, Jeremy McClellan, and I heard a show by him recently, actually in Pittsburgh and it was, it was in a church, and he pointed out the cry room, and he said, there's a cry room available, which is great. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't like children, you can go to that room and cry. And it <laughs> kind of, like, flipped the tables on the way that people think about that sort of thing. Um, Teresa, I know you've also written and thought about Catholic schools and, and what this sort of conversation looks like in Catholic schools. How would you grade, I guess, the schools that you've seen and how, uh, how, how they're approaching disability and, and welcoming uh, students with disabilities?
2: Well, I, you know what I—we uh, are in a fantastic situation right now because, again, my parish is um, in, in the diocese of Pittsburgh. When they the the church for for years was responsible for the care and education of children with disabilities, and in the um, 1970s, after um, some of the educational acts allotting or or you know requiring public education to step up and ensure that everybody had a free and accessible public education. What happened was, unfortunately, the Catholic Church almost went out of the business of educating children with special needs, except for the case of children with profound disabilities. So they were very content to take these children with special needs and shunt them all into the public school. And what a loss for the entire community. So in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, what they did instead was they, um, uh, rather than closing down their school for children with special needs, they turned it into different site locations, and they have a number of different schools throughout the Pittsburgh Diocese that have children have programs for kids with Down syndrome autism, developmental delays, where these kids go to school alongside of their um, their typically typical classmates. And then they have you know pullouts for individual instruction in math and or in reading or whatever they need, but they're there with their kids. So my daughter is able to go to school with her brothers, you know, who are also in grade school. And it, it's tremendous, and it goes on through high school, and then there's a program at Duquesne University. But I'll tell you what, this is a, an extremely rare program. I know there are some initiatives around the country. Country Kansas City, for example, has an initiative trying to, um, you know, it, working on getting kids with disabilities into their Catholic schools. Um, uh, I know there are some individual foundations, but, but what I've heard from, friends around the country is that one of the, the crushing disappointments of the Catholic school system is that there seems to be no room for children with disabilities. And it can cause a lot of bitterness. And we're putting our kids, our kids with disabilities, into public schools. And we're, you know, in a sense, almost as if their religious formation didn't matter and as if they didn't have something to contribute to the rest of the community. Whereas if, you're, if you happen to be fortunate enough to be w- um, in one of these areas that has a way of mainstreaming children with disabilities into the Catholic school system, what you find out is that that transforms the entire school. The kids who are around these these kids with special needs become kinder. They're a little gentler. They're patient. They learn to wait for their classmates. They learn to be a little bit more accommodating of differences. But, but as I said, by and large, in terms of you know nationwide, how I would how I would grade all the Catholic schools and how they're including children with disabilities. I would say we are, you know, on the whole, with the exception of these rare pockets, we're failing at it. We are failing at it. For whatever reason, we're pretty content to let the state raise these kids. And in the process, we're missing this opportunity to bring these children back into the midst of the church community. and the the other repercussion then too, is that when Catholic children become adults and they start having kids, if they don't have that exposure to kids with special needs, they're going to be more likely to be swayed by pro-abortion arguments when it's their turn to receive a prenatal diagnosis of a disability. So we really need to look at this as part of a comprehensive mission from the time a child is diagnosed with a disability up through their death they are part of the church community, and they should be
1: welcome in our schools, they
2: should be welcome in our parishes. Well, so I feel very
1: strongly about it. No, I think you're right. The the sort of question would be, if someone's listening to this, and, um, I mean, I, I know the different dioceses that I've been a part of, there's either been um, groups that have started, or there's nascent groups, there's people who have done things um, other than very obvious uh, contributions, like, you know, one way you make this popular, uh, more possible is, if you're setting on a cool million dollars, maybe assess some of it to <laughs> uh you know making it where the Catholic schools can have the resources to um, include disability uh services what's what would you say is the the first sort of thing that someone in a diocese who wants to make this more prominent needs to do is there do you do you have either um experience from what what you yourself have done or do you think there's a good first step or two that needs to happen? So that a, a diocese where you might be at locally can, can get further down the road with these discussions.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel, and, and I can't take any credit for this because this has been set up by a lot of, a lot of other people. Um, but there is a, a website called the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And if you go to their resources page there um, and pull down the menu on their resources page, they have a section on Catholic schools. And underneath that section, then they have a section on funding models. So there is a, an organization called the Catholic Coalition for Special Education that offers support for the creation of special education programs. I'm reading verbatim from their website. Through seed funding, technical assistance, and professional development. So in other words, if you're a diocese and you're interested in this, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? There are organizations out there. They have tuition assistance grants for training your your um, uh, your teachers in special education. There's also the FIRE Foundation, which is, an, or an I think it's a foundation out of Kansas City, I want to say, which is a 501c3 organization that started in particular in the Kansas City area, but it also now, um, I think, has broadened out to um, partnership with, you know, on, on more of a national level. And again, there are grants so that you can welcome students with Down syndrome learning disabilities or children who are on the autistic spectrum. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. The other thing I would say is, if you're a diocese and you're 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 listening to this, take an employee, take the time, go and send send them to one of the dioceses that is actually doing it. Send them to the diocese of Pittsburgh. Let them see what the St. Anthony program is doing. Philadelphia has a program. And they have a couple of schools, and the schools are freestanding, but they're next to Catholic schools, and so they merge them together. There's a lot of of interaction. I you know I, I did a fair amount of research on this, and at least I know a number of years ago that was the model that philadelphia used but it still is a way of partnering your kids with the kids with disabilities you know there's obviously a balance right my daughter can't learn math at the same pace as her typically abled classmates, so you know you do need some individualized instruction but but we you know think about it think about it creatively and and you know the other the other thing that i will say is a bit of a problem is that i don't think parishes even realize how many persons with disabilities they have. Mm. I mean, are you adequately counting it? Because I've heard from people that when they when they take censuses when they take a census, a parish census or when they send out a questionnaire and they ask how many persons with disabilities you have in their in your diocese, they'll say, you know, I don't have any, which which isn't true. We we know <clears> that's not true, right? It just means that either they're not coming or you're not counting them or, you know, they're there. You've got to reach out to them and reach out to these families. So, you know, again, the, the the website would be the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And I, I know it's expensive. I, I, Catholic education is expensive. But, um, but, but I, I think what they've found in the diocese in Pittsburgh, certainly, is that people are very willing to step up and to help fund this because they regard mm-hmm. this as an extremely worthwhile charity, right? And it, it is something where you can see immediate demonstrable good and and the other thing that you find is that the the parents in these schools where you're able to to push in kids with disabilities and it has to be done right you've got to have adequate support you can't just put a child with disabilities into a classroom without support right but but the other parents really value it because for years before my daughter was born I know I thought it was one of the best things about our parish school was that my kids were in a a, a school i mean the their first day in their the school they were they were there, and a, a child with autism had a meltdown and went out in the hall and screamed. And, uh, and you know, the staff went out and quieted her, and, and everything was fine. But my daughter came home and told me about it, and I said, well, what did you do? And she said, we just kept working. Someone went out and made them feel better, and it was okay. And I thought, wow, this is what a tremendous
1: lesson. Well, Teresa, we we got to let you go because we're uh, we're getting to the end of the show here quickly. Is there a place that if people want to encounter um, some more of your writings, uh, where, where's an easy place for them to go look for them?
2: Um, I do have a, a web page, but I'll be honest, I'm not very good at tending it. I have a book that I published um, a number of years ago with Regnery called, um, or published it last year called "Get Out Now," and it it actually is about public education. And I do have a section at the end. Where um, we deal directly with the question of children with disabilities and and you know because I do think there's this default tendency to put kids with disabilities in the public school and you know I try to give some reasons why you know as a community we need to look towards educating everything but um, but I do have my own um, my own website I think it's TeresaFarnan.com. I, I don't know but and, and I have links to some of my articles um, some of my articles there and and um, so that would be probably a good place to
1: well, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been uh, a blessing to like, to speak about all this and this very important topic. And so I hope people um, take uh, advantage of both uh, the, the websites you, you pointed out for resources and uh, take a look at your writing. So, Teresa, thanks for coming on the show.
2: All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, yeah.
1: Teresa. Folks, this is The Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts and our families, our city, state, nation, world, solar system, the galaxy, the entire kit and caboodle. We'll be back next week.
0: The Uncommon Good with Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcasts. Just search for The Uncommon Good.